Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario Legislature resumes today, and the Premier says the tone he hopes to achieve this year will be a kinder one. Hamilton Board of Education is considering a plan for a bullying review panel that will be led by three community members. And ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died in a U.S. Special Forces raid. But what does that leave the region? And where does that leave ISIS? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's uh, back to work today for Doug Ford after five months away from the Ontario legislature. Uh, they resume sitting today. And we're told from the Premier's office that it's going to be a, uh, a kinder, gentler government than we saw in the first year and a half or so. Uh, we'll delve into that right now. Henry Jasek is with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Henry, good morning. How are you today? I'm just great. Happy Monday. Happy Monday and happy back to work day, I guess, for Doug Ford. This is a, the, the longest, uh, I guess, time off. I mean, this is quote-unquote summer recess, but the longest one in the last 25 years. It was rather odd, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a very yeah a very long time. I think there was one that was uh, around the same amount when Harris was in uh, uh, around 1999, but that was a long that was 20 years ago. So I can't remember exactly how long that was, but that was a long one away. But this is yeah, this was a very long way uh, one away. Uh, they should have been back at work right after Labor Day, like most of us, and uh, and they decided that they were going to take time off and really free up a lot of their people who actually campaigned. Uh, for the federal conservatives, uh, so uh, that that was the real reason, and also to keep Doug Ford under wraps, uh, so he wouldn't antagonize people more than he already has. Well, and I know they continue to deny that even now, but I mean that's that's yeah. the reality of it. I mean, you know, I think yeah, he, the only public appearance he showed the whole campaign was the plowing match, and I don't think he took questions of that thing. But I, that's that's water under the bridge now because I mean the, right. the auction's over. Sheer lost anyway. Uh, and right. lost in Ontario, and, and so right. uh, we, we've moved on. But but l- let's let's you know take this as almost the halftime report, I guess, of right. the Ford government because they're, re- they're really about halfway through their mandate right now. Can they change gears the way they seem to indicate that they want to here, Henry? Well, you have to you have to see what they're going to do. Uh, are they actually going to change it? Uh, the first thing, well, the first thing is Ford himself. Uh, there's a lot of things he can do. Uh, I mean, he's. Given an interview where he seems like he's going going to have a, you know be nicer to the opposition and not so not so nasty, uh, we'll have to see. Uh, but you know, just taking him as a premier of the province, uh, it is interesting to look at the other premiers. There was a whole bunch of premiers who really did fight against uh, um, Justin Trudeau in the federal election. Uh, he won, and what, what did we see is they started splitting up. The New Brunswick Conservative premier and the Manitoba Conservative premier said. Well, we got to face reality. Uh, Justin Trudeau won. We have to deal with them. We got to stop fighting with them. Th- that seemed pretty reasonable. Now, of course, that was contrasted with the two belligerents, uh, premiers in Saskatchewan and in Alberta. They're all, they're not only, you know, <laughs> they're not only out west, but they're all really isolated. I mean, of all the premiers, they're they're the ones who s- seem like they just don't accept, uh, you know, the federal election result. And we know, and then Ford says now he's going to have to work with the federal government, although apparently he's going to keep, go ahead with the carbon tax lawsuit, which I think is not going to get him any friends in Ontario. But uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, and, and that's really contrary to something he had mentioned during the campaign, that if, uh, if, yes. if Trudeau was reelected, that he said he would probably drop the whole thing, as, as the premier of New Brunswick has done, by the way. Uh, with that same reality, figuring, you know what, that seventy uh, percent of the people in this country voted for a political party that supports a carbon tax. So he says, "We're we're out of this. We're just it is what it is. We don't like it, but it is what it is." 
right. Uh, but Doug Ford doubled down on it and simply said, no, I changed my mind. I'm going to go ahead with this. And yeah, see, that, that I think is a mistake. And, I mean, some of his uh, backbenchers and I think uh, or member, other MPPs and some of the staff there said, hey, you know, you have to take a look at what happened in the federal election. The heart of, you know, of Ford's support, um, Etobicoke, Mississauga, uh, you know, Scarborough, the Liberals won every seat there. And in his own personal seat in Etobicoke North, the Liberal cabinet minister got a lot more votes, both higher percentage and a lot more votes than Doug Ford ever got. So, you know, they say, you know, so they're looking at that and they say, boy, we really have to play nice with the federal government. And we, and I think they're hoping that uh, the premier is going to really do, change his stripes here because they're really concerned, you know, by the time they hit the next election, they're going to be, you know, really, really in the, in the dumps otherwise. I guess one of the things that's always bothered me, and I'm going to look with great interest to see if, if this changes at all, is the attitude of not just the government, mm-hmm. but Ford himself. Uh, because they've always used, and I understand there's always going to be some bombast from any political party that gets sure. elected, you know, that, well, you know, this was our mandate. Uh, I, I hope at some point, even behind closed doors, he's come to the realization that one of the reasons he won a majority government is because they wanted Kathleen Wynne out of here. It wasn't so much they liked what he was doing because he was pretty vague on his campaign promises anyway. But you've got to have a little humility, and I'm hoping Justin Trudeau's learned that lesson with this election, and I'm hoping Ford has come to that realization as well, that not everybody supports everything this guy wants to do. Yeah, that's right, and that was a terrible mistake. And a lot of politicians who win a victory think, oh, they love me, when in fact they should point, they should really recognize they didn't like the person who was in office. They didn't pay much attention to you. They just wanted to get rid of the person, and we know that, you know, uh, Kathleen Wynne uh, was terribly unpopular by the end of her four-year majority uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But the, what the reasons weren't, however, what the reasons weren't, that they weren't of a lot of the policy things she was proposing in that last year. In fact, they, uh, people actually liked him, but, but she, you know, that wasn't good enough for people to say, we're going to vote for you. They, they just didn't like her. Doing those. Because we're doing those. And so the Ford people came in, and Ford himself said, we're going to get rid of all those because they elected us, and they obviously must dislike what she did. And so they, they misread that. And then they, uh, and, and I know I talked to a lot of Tories over the past year, and they had this attitude. It was very troubling to me. Is they said, oh, now we're going to get even with the liberals. We're going to get rid of everything we've done, and it's, it's, a, it's a time for settling scores. And I said, geez, and I, just, I would just listen to this, and I said, that is not a good idea. You know, so you don't come into office and say you're going to settle scores with the people you just trashed and threw out because, you know, you're, you're misreading what the, what the voters really want you to do. They, the voters really want you to be, you know, a different government and maybe, you know, fine-tune uh, po- policies they like that the liberals had, but they don't want you to go in there, you know, with uh, with an axe and just be cutting away all sorts of stuff that people like, but, you know, they just want a different administration. Well, and, and that's going to be interesting to see just what kind of an attitude they take to this. Now, I know he has made some changes on the cabinet, and uh, yeah. some of the more contentious ministers have been shifted around to, to less right. important portfolios. Uh, but I, even from day one here, Henry, I mean, what they do this week, I think, is going to actually be a kind of a bellwether as to what whether or not there is going to be a change of attitude. I mean, there is a pending teacher strike here, and I mean, if they don't oh, get yeah. to work on that pretty soon, that's going to happen. Uh, he's going to continue spending his $30 million fighting the carbon tax, even though he's lost that already in court. Right, he's going right. to take that all the way to the Supreme Court. So it's it's one thing to, for a government to say we're going to be changing and we're going to do things differently, but uh, if it's going to be the same old act, then, you know, what's 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 to believe now? Yeah, I mean, he has to... Uh 
Yeah, he has to, the the teacher's uh, situation is an interesting thing. Is that there are a lot of people, and there were there are actually some people in the liberal party as well, you know, who think you know they ought to be tougher on the teachers. But we know education is really a tough a tough nut for any government. First of all, I mean, parents care about the education their students their their kids are getting, uh, you know, all the way up. You know, especially with the elementary and high school, but also even beyond that. But the education is important because they they see that as the future of their children. If children don't get a good education, if they're not taken care of, if they're not help put on the you know the right road to success as as adults, then that's going to negatively affect their family, and that is a really critical thing. And so the teachers have been pretty good, and a lot of the other people in in the um, education area have been pretty good in convincing the parents, we're on your side. We're going to take care of your kids. What we're fighting for are things not only to put money in our pocket, but we're fighting for things like you know, small, smaller class sizes, more individual attention, better facilities uh, in, in, uh, for the students. And so the, the teachers have are in a very strong position, and they I know you know they certainly the governments would all like to pay them less money than they do, but they're they're not you know they have to deal with the situation that they have, and the teachers just have a lot of support from from parents, and that's uh, and there's there's a lot of and those parents will vote and be active in in the next uh, provincial election. Well, and that's an interesting point, as I say, if this is by I guess definition the kind of the halfway point in this four year mandate. Uh, at some point, somebody in that party, if it's not Ford, it's got to be one of his advisors, if he has any of those, is going to have to say, look, you're going to have to change things. Uh, I guess the bottom line here, Henry, is governments that have 19% approval rating don't get reelected. And if he That's wants to right. get reelected, he's got to do something differently. That's right. I mean, he's lost over half of his his, his voters within within a year, uh, you know, in a year and a half. I mean, it's uh, it's an incredible fall. I mean, that never happened to... Any other premier that I can think of uh, certainly didn't happen to Kathleen Wynne. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that is a tremendous fall. And so they, they completely misread the, the electorate. And, of course, he made bad mistakes in terms of people he favored early on, in terms of playing favorites, putting, putting uh, you know, his, his, his buddies into the cabinet office, uh, running, running uh, not the cabinet office, his office, running his office, trying to get some of his buddies into important jobs like, uh, you know, the OPP commissioner. You know, that, that, those were terrible, terrible mistakes. The other thing that I think will sober him up a little is that, um, you know, and if he reflects on it, is, is the fact that I know when he was, uh, when he and his brother were very active in, uh, you know, in the, in the city of Toronto, they got a lot of people uh, to vote for them who were working class people who normally would vote NDP. And he boasted, I know Doug would vote, boast to people, he said, we're not only... You know, my brother and I aren't only successful in Toronto because of of conservatives. He said we're successful because these working class NDP people have s- supported me, and he believed that. And I think he believed that even coming into the uh, uh, into the election in his first year. But he had a you know, but but where really should give him pause is the fact that his av- uh, official opposition is the NDP. The NDP isn't as weak as he th- he thought it was. So he's got he's got he, he has to reflect that if he. You know, you know, if he stays down there at 19 percent, I mean, he's likely to run and come come in third, not only second. So, and the NDP is not going away, and the Liberals are going to get a new leader, so they're going to get a bit better, although they have a long way to go. So he's got to he's got to face up to this that he's going to have two strong opponents coming up in uh, 20. 
2022s probably. Well, and and again, it's going to depend on how he establishes relationships. Obviously, right. and, and it's not just you know the mandatory standing ovations that apparently his caucus oh, were yeah. told to give him. I mean, that was that got a little thin very very quickly. But right. it's it's going to be, I think, those federal and provincial relationships. I mean, I, right. I think your point's well taken. Premier Mo in Saskatchewan and Premier Kenny in Alberta have just pretty much decided that look, they're going to be the federal government's enemy no matter what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, you know, they hate Justin Trudeau, and, and everything they say and do is going to be reflective of that fact that they just can't stand the guy. If mm-hmm. Ford joins in that, we've already seen that Ontarians are, are, are not going to buy into that anymore. Even if they don't like Trudeau, they think at least, you know, you guys have to learn to get along and work together. Yeah. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see just how much of an approach and what kind of an attitude he's going to take. That's right. And as, 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 and then as you were talking, you would just remind everybody again, the Liberals did very well in Ontario. And, they, uh, they actually picked up a seat. They had 76 last time, and they have 78, I guess, now, because that other one, that writing, they had the, the recount. So right. they've actually increased their, their standing in Ontario. That's right. So they, they, they are strengthened. And so Justin Trudeau actually, in many ways, uh, looking at the, uh, all the party leaders, that he was more, more you know, he, he was the most favored leader, certainly in Ontario, and he got, <clears throat> he got the most seats. And so he, you know, you have to deal with him, and you, you have to be reasonable with him, and and uh, that that's what Ford has to do if he's going to try to get this support back. And the other level of government have to talk about the municipalities. I mean, they're, they're, I think Ford didn't quite realize that a lot of the policies that, especially that the Liberals were bringing in towards the end of their mandate, were very good for the municipalities. And we know that, and you would understand this given your, your background, you know, the, the, the mayors and the councillors have big jobs. They have a lot of responsibilities. People have a lot of expectations, and they don't have the revenues to meet them. And he's got to do something, essentially, to convince the mayors and the councillors of our municipalities that he's on their side. And I noticed I was happy to hear you're going to talk about affordable housing later on, and that's, that is a really big issue. And I think he's got. They've got to do something dramatic in that area because the, we do have a housing crisis in this in this in this province, and it's only going to get worse. Well, and, and therein lies the problem. And and you know he if he does that sort of thing, Henry, he's going to have it would come election time in the next year and a half, two years for the provincial election. That is, uh, right. if he's if he's on side, he's going to have advocates in every city in the, in the province right now because they're going to say, hey, look, look what the government's done for us. They're helping us. Uh, right That's now, right. they've still got their hand out and saying, you know, we, we are still facing a huge problem here at Hamilton, and I guess in right. just about every other city, about That's these right. cuts that he's announced. He delayed them until next year, but they're still coming. So this is only yeah. going to get worse unless he decides to change his mind on that, too. Yeah, and there's a lot of things he can do, as uh, you know, as, as a lot of the writings on affordable housing and would point out that there there is a lot of um, provincial land around that can be used for affordable housing if he... Essentially, you know, you know, one big idea is, of course, to to let this land be leased land rather than having asking people to buy, you know, organizations who want to put affordable housing, let them lease the land from the province, and then they, oh, whatever cash they they raise after that, then they can put it into actually the housing itself. So, you know, there there's a lot of things he can do, and but if he starts right away, by the time he comes into his last year, he can be going around and cutting a lot of ribbons at a lot of housing developments, which will. Which, which would be very good for him. Certainly, I would advise him to do that. So what he does right now in the next year, you know, is going to, you know, if it, if it shows tangible progress and doing things for people, he's, he should have a very good year going into 2022. But he's got he's to do this, things immediately 
and he's got to you know get those in train and get those policies going. And we're going to have to see what what the whether he whether his agenda is going to do that sort of thing. Well, he says he's learned from his mistakes, and and let's just watch and see exactly what uh, what that means and and what that's going to entail. Uh, Henry, as always, thanks for this. Great having you on the show today. Okay, it's going to be an interesting week, that's for sure. It sure is. Henry Jasek, a political science professor, of course, at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week we talked with uh, Manny Figueroa, who is the uh, director of education with the Hamilton uh, Board of Education, uh, about a couple of different things. Obviously the tragedy at Winston Churchill, but also a report that was done by CBC, uh, not just about the Hamilton Board, but about boards of education right across the province that uh, identified some huge gaps in uh, the, uh, the the way in which bullying and, and things of that nature are actually reported, uh, not just to the board, but by the board to the to the ministry. Uh, and uh, Mr. Figueroa at the time, Manny told us he has a, a plan that he was developing that he's going to present to the, the uh, trustees today at their meeting, as a matter of fact. So I want to get Alex Johnstone, and she, of course, is the chair of the uh, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, and uh, they'll be listening to this and making some determination about this later on today. Alex, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us on a busy day today. Good morning, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what you'll be facing today. Have you had a chance to uh, to look at what, uh, what Manny Figueroa is proposing here, this uh, this panel that he was talking about? Yes, and, and I want to start, Bill, by highlighting that our board of trustees and the wider school board takes safety and security of our students and staff extremely seriously. Um, that's, uh, that's why we want to hear uh, from students, parents, our entire community, and we want, uh, we want folks to know that we've heard your concerns and that we know that we can do better as a school board, um, that we want to work with, uh, with our community to make sure that our schools and our community is safer for everyone because no one should be left to suffer the consequences of bullying and silence. And, and you've heard those stories uh, from parents and from concerned citizens, and certainly we have too, uh, not just to, regarding the incident at Churchill, obviously, but uh, over the last number of years, which has, uh, I guess, the seed for this whole idea about the panel. But I, I, I think what underscores this too, Alex, is, is this uh, CBC analysis that was done, uh, that at least one-third of the boards of education across the province have what they call important gaps or inconsistencies in the figures they've been submitting electronically to the ministry about bullying and situations of bullying. And this is going back over the last seven or eight years, I suppose, really. But they, they said Hamilton Board was actually one of the, the ones that was most glaring. Uh, why, why the inconsistency? Because the numbers here are vastly different from, from uh, what CBC is giving us anyway with their, uh, their analysis of this. Well, Bill, I think that's why we're we're taking action as a as a board of trustees. And tonight, um, HWDSB board of trustees will be asked to strike a safe schools bullying prevention and intervention panel. Um, and that panel will be, um, should it pass, will be working with members of our community, including parents, students, community organizations, leading experts in the province to provide us with guidance and advice on bullying prevention, um, strategies, tactics, as well as uh, reviewing our, our bullying reporting. Um, that, my understanding with regards to uh, the data that was being provided to the province that, um, that it had to do with uh, computer glitch uh, between our computer system, the province's computer gl- uh, system, that ours was not the only board in the province. Um, but I do want folks to know that every single year the Board of Trustees does get a complete 
uh, full review of um, of incidents taking place in our schools that our local trustees back in 2017 and all the years um, have had a full review of the incidents um, that um, we and we actually ask for additional information as uh, compared to what the province requests. So it um, it was it did have. Um, uh, there was review being done by the local board of trustees. How all the information was being delivered to the province was not um, accurate. My understanding is that immediately upon discovering uh, the glitch, which was a few weeks later, the um, our board did notify the um, did notify the province of the correct numbers. Is is there a difference here in in the reporting mechanisms here, Alex? I mean, it, it seemed anyway as as I read some of those numbers and 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 saw some of the analysis of this that it looked to me as if the ministry uh, was using a different system. I, I don't know double counting or I don't know exactly what it was. But uh, when we talked with Manny Figueroa about that last week, he seemed to indicate that 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 maybe it was an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, and and I'm I'm thinking that's obviously going to at least in part explain some of the inconsistencies. Each, each board across the province uses a different uh, data system, and that's where the discrepancies are created. Uh, the data systems do not always uh, speak the same language or speak ac- um, accurately to each other between the province and the school board. Um, that's why it would be helpful if all boards had the same operating system. Uh, it would significantly reduce errors in, uh, in data. But in terms of the actual reporting locally, uh, we did have the Board of Trustees reviewing that data. And I think, you know, as we, to go back to the panel, uh, Bill, um, in the, the steps moving forward, we, we have heard from the community, the Board of Trustees, um, not only wants to rebuild trust with the community, but we very much want to work towards a collaborative solution, a solution where we have all of our partners um, taking part, and that is where we are, uh, where we're looking to uh, consult with um, experts across the province, such as Dr. Tracy Valencourt, who is a uh, children's mental health and violence promotion expert at the University of Ottawa, as well as uh, looking to our local community partners, such as Hamilton Health Sciences, Hamilton Police, as well as the many community organizations that we have that have reached out over the last uh, number of weeks um, to ensure that we have a thorough and deliberate um, review uh, in consultations and that our subsequent um, recommendations are also thorough and deliberate. Uh, there are some great resources, and of course we know Tracy Vancourt, she's uh, been, been a great resource for a number of years in this. Uh, but the frustration I hear uh, from an awful lot of people, Alex, is uh, when, when they do summon up the courage to report, and that can take uh, some with some difficulty, obviously, because they're always going to be concerned about repercussions uh, from the people that are doing the bullying, is when they do come forward, though, a lot of the time they say, look, it, we're not getting enough action on this. Which begs the question, and I don't think there's any indifference on the part of of, of the school administration, certainly not among the trustees, but do you have all the tools at hand that you can deal with the the problems that are coming up these days? And that's exactly what the, the panel and the work of the panel is going to determine. It's going to review bullying prevention, intervention, reporting, responding. Um, I fully anticipate for there to be a number of recommendations to come out of this, uh, not only in terms of the strategies, but also the resources that schools need in order to adequately respond to bullying and bullying prevention. 
Um, in the meantime, I think it's really important for the community to know that we strongly encourage our students, parents, and members of the community to come forward and report issues when they arise. We know that this can be difficult and scary, and we have an app that students can make reports anonymously or they can speak confidentially with their principal, vice principal, or teacher. We want to hear from you, and uh, in order to address issues, we need to hear, hear from you directly. Are, are they aware of that? I mean, that, that when you have something like that, and that sounds like a very useful tool, uh, obviously making that aware, making students aware that that's available to them is has got to be the job one here in a situation like that so they know they can utilize that. Uh, well, talk to us a little bit, Alex, about the program, which I assume happens at the beginning of every school year, about uh, about educating the students and the parents, for that matter, about what tools are available if they find themselves being victimized. We've had tip-off in place for the last few years. Um, our board was quite proud of introducing this app um, as we were one of the leaders in the province to do so. Um, each year, it's advertised in our schools and our classrooms. That said, I... I do see that um, it's a it's a tool that could be used more, and I'm hoping that through the work of the panel, we can also have some very uh, frank conversations about barriers to reporting, uh, as well as um, what we can do to to make reporting reporting easier for our students. And to that end, uh, talk to us about the mechanisms that are in place to, to, to try to get over that hurdle that many people are saying is, well, I told them and it's my word against them and, you know, who do you believe in a situation like that? Uh, the, the concern that I'm hearing from a lot of them, Alex, is that, uh, you know, we're not being taken seriously here. Mm-hmm. Well, I know the school board has been, here in Hamilton especially, we have many complex student needs and... Uh, Uh, We face unique challenges here in Hamilton that are different uh, from most boards across the province where, for example, we have the second highest level of child poverty um, in the province. We have a very high rate of uh, English as a second language. So we have additional um, uh, we have additional complexities that we have to look to address as a school board. Um, That's why we've been looking to invest. Um, So locally, uh, we are, we've been doing more to make our schools safer. Uh, so, for example, since the start of the school year, we had hired 25 youth, child and youth workers who are working directly with our students and their families who may need additional support right now. These are resources that are in addition to the behavioral analysis that we brought into our system the year prior. Uh, and the behavioral analysis worked directly with our teachers to identify student behavioral needs and how to program for them. So we have been adding on um, staff or adding on a, a, a different staff with different uh, qualities in order to help address the unique needs of our students. Um, it's, uh, it's always a complex issue. Uh, again, I cannot uh, drill um, drill home enough that if you're currently facing an issue, we want you to talk to your teacher. We want you to talk to your principal. If you're feeling that you're not uh, you're you're not being heard, please continue to contact us. Contact your superintendent. Contact your school trustee. We want to hear from you. We want to help. 
There's an interesting incongruity to this whole thing. I know that the Minister of Education, uh, Mr. Lecce, has been in touch with your board, at least uh, through Mr. Figueredo anyway, uh, and he says he's monitoring the Hamilton situation and wants to get as much information as you can uh, provide, I guess, as this study goes forward here. But at the same time, on the other hand, of course, they've they've done significant cuts to the education budgets right now. Uh, What you've just described here, Alex, sounds like a, a very laudable program, and you deserve credit for taking the initiative to do that. But you've got to wonder about where the funding's are going to come from something like this, or for something like this, despite the, the government's uh, austerity program, which obviously is having an impact on boards of education right across the province. Well, I'll take the opportunity to highlight the importance of the local school or local priorities grant, and that's grant money that our board used locally to hire many of these professionals. And um, uh, it does have a direct and immediate impact on a, each school board's ability to address their local needs. Um, we have uh, been in communication with the ministry, and we're hopeful that uh, that they will take the results uh, seriously um, and that they will not only look to support our board, but all boards across the province with regards to uh, introducing the supports and resources are necessary, that are necessary to support our students and families as we experience bullying. It's, uh, it's a system or it's a, it's a concern that's not only local to Hamilton, but right across this province. I think that school boards across the province will be looking to Hamilton to see what the findings are that we come up with. And uh, hopefully that leads to solutions across the province. Well, and, and that's another reason why Hamilton is being uh, becoming a leader in this whole situation. But uh, I think your point's well taken, that the ministry has to understand that you, they can't develop a one-size-fits-all policy. I know bullying is, is a concern in just about every jurisdiction. We get that. But the reasons why it's happening in different jurisdictions may vary from Hamilton to Windsor to, to Kingston, et cetera, et cetera. And they need to be cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. So... Let's, let's, I, I don't want to presuppose how this is going to work out because, I mean, you guys are going to, I'm sure, have a discussion about this at your board meeting today. But uh, the, we, they're talking about a three-person panel on this. Now, who's going to select the panel and when do they get to work on the, on, on the concerns here? So the panel would, would get to work uh, immediately. It's three individuals. Those individuals are intended to be uh, local community members who can lead the work. Um, so the focus is on, on the work, um, is, uh, board of trustees. And I'm sure what the community will hear from tonight is that trustees very want, much want the voice of the community included and reflected in this work every step of the way. We want to hear from youth. We want to hear from our students. We want to hear from parents, community organizations, community partners. Um, this must be community-driven. And uh, ultimately, we are looking for everyone to, to get involved. Um, that's the only way to address this serious and complex issue of bully, bullying and violence in our community. Uh, the only way to address it is if we all work together, and we owe that to our kids. So with that in mind, uh, is the board going to select the three people, or are you going to accept applications? How's that process going to work? So our understanding is that our director does have uh, some individuals in mind. Uh, as per the characteristics that are being proposed tonight, uh, we should hear um, tonight who the individuals are. And with that, um, 
the panel, I guess the, the panel is about conducting the work. It's, uh, they are facilitating it. They are coordinating it. Um, and, uh, ensuring that the report is written, ensuring the execution of the actual work. Um, but with regards to, uh, who will be a part of the process, we want everyone. We want everyone to be a part of the process. Anyone who wants to be a part of the process, we want to hear from you. And that is, um, the focus is, is really is on the work that uh, will be coming out of um, out of the panel. So, with that in mind, then is the board going to set the parameters for the the work that the panel is going to do here, Alex, or will you just allow this panel to go wherever they think they need to go? I believe that you'll be hearing from a number of trustees tonight asking questions uh, to that regard. Um, trustees by nature, like to keep processes close to them and so that they can monitor and be transparent. Um, it is, uh, I think that what you'll be hearing tonight is a request to have continuous reports back to the Board of Trustees throughout the full process uh, to ensure that the community is being reconnected with the entire process from beginning to end in terms of um, uh, how we consult to the actual consultations and the final reporting um, or the analysis and then the final reporting. Yeah, because I saw those timelines uh, when we were talking to Manny Figueroa about this, and he was suggesting that they were probably uh, going to be working until at least May. It would be much better, obviously, if we had some interim reports through the course of that, because that's, that's almost the end of the school year. Uh, and, and you want to have some ongoing stuff. I'm sure they're going to discover things that could be dealt with and acted upon immediately instead of waiting for a report in May. The, the intent is it, um, to have a collaborative process the entire way through. Uh, we hope this uh, is a first step along the way to, to try to, to minimize the impact that this is having on the community, of course. We just saw one of the most tragic examples of that, of course, at Churchill. And I know that uh, your board is actually going to do an investigation into that uh, at some point in the future as well to try to make some determinations about what went wrong and, and how that can be fixed. Uh, it's a very complex problem, and uh, we're hoping that uh, that this board and this panel that you set up today, Alex, is, is going to be a good first step on that. Uh, we'll be uh, following up with you, I guess, in the uh, the days and weeks ahead to see how this develops. But thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Alex Johnson, of course, who is the chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, later on, of course, they'll be doing with this particular instance, and uh, we will certainly do some follow-ups on that. Uh, but the the message Alex gave is the same one that we heard from Annie Figueroa, the uh, Director of Education, uh, and from Pat Daly from the Catholic Board of Education. And we had discussions with Pat about that as well. Uh, the first rule and the takeaway from this is if you think you're being victimized, if you know you're being victimized, say something. And if you see something happening to somebody else, uh, they, as the old saying goes, if you see something, say something. And make sure that this is reported and uh, and certainly, hopefully, the 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 people in charge uh, can act accordingly and uh, avoid these kind of tragedies. And frankly, every incidence of bullying is in, in fact a tragedy uh, to the ones who are being bullied. So let's do what we can as a, as a community to try to deal with this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big news uh, in the fight against ISIS uh, over the weekend. Uh, uh, well, in rather early morning on Sunday, I guess an awful lot of people probably missed this, but uh, the leader of the Islamic State, ISIS, uh, died Saturday in a U.S. Special Forces raid. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump made the uh, announcement in a nationally televised address early Sunday morning. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. In 
Typical Donald Trump fashion, I suppose, with the usual Trump flair there. Uh, but there are serious implications to this. And, uh, of course, we get word now that uh, that uh, even uh, Baghdadi's uh, right-hand man uh, it seems to have been taken out in another raid that was done in another part of Syria. So what are the implications? Well, uh, let's uh, talk with us with uh, Stephen Sabman. Stephen, of course, is uh, the uh, director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network, professor at Carleton University and co-host of the Battle Rhythm Podcast. And uh, always a welcome guest on uh, the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Stephen, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. And, and maybe the, the work that goes into something like this, obviously, as we heard the news on Sunday, uh, it brought back uh, memories of, of the, uh, the bin Laden uh, exercise that took out Osama bin Laden some years ago under the Obama administration. Uh, are, are, is there a plan in place for something like this, Stephen? And, and obviously, job one is to find these individuals. But I mean, uh, how much work goes into that after the announcement is made, or at least through security services, that we think we know where this guy is? An incredible amount of work goes through this. Uh, they had the information at least as of July, from what it sounds like. We're still getting reports about the details. But they had this information going back, and so they practice, and they practice. They get as much information as they can get about the particular location. They work out all the uh, various possibilities. Uh, they uh, talk to local partners if they have them. Uh, and then they try to figure out the way to do it in a, in a way that minimizes the risk for the special operations forces and maximize the chance for success. So they, again, they have they'll have scale models. Uh, they'll practice and practice until they feel pretty comfortable about it. But you never know exactly what's going to happen uh, because obviously things change. You don't have complete intelligence. There's that whole fog of war thing. But they try to do the best they can to anticipate every possibility and be prepared for it. At what point do they bring the administration in? I mean, you know, we obviously Donald Trump made the announcement about this. We at some point was consulted. Uh, the Obama situation, we uh, I guess still have a picture in our minds of of the president and the vice president sitting in the situation room as this raid was actually being carried out. Uh, does this planning and this work go into this initially, Stephen, and then they bring them in, or do they have to get the okay from the White House first? That's a good question. We depends probably on each administration uh, how deeply involved they are. Given that the Bin Laden uh, mission was something that had been uh, hot, one of the highest priorities of the Obama administration, my guess is that they were involved earlier than the Trump administration. Uh, also, Donald Trump is far more comfortable delegating lots of decisions to the military. So ultimately, the final call had to be made by the President of the United States. Uh, these are very risky endeavors, and the parallel to this is, is uh, the 1980 hostage rescue mission where the U.S. tried to rescue American hostages taken by the Iranian students in Tehran. And the mission failed in the deserts of Iran, and it was a big body blow for the United States in its image. So there's always that in the back of the mind that you need to have the highest levels of authority to to, to make this kind of mission, because if it goes awry, it can go awry very, very badly. Well, I, and, and again, as I mentioned, the, you know, this brought back memories of the bin Laden thing, but to me it also brought back memories of that uh, terrible incident, too. Uh, and as you say, it was not just a black eye for the United States. It was probably one of the determining factors in Jimmy Carter not uh, being reelected in the next election. Well, that was pretty much a done deal, but yes, uh, it was very bad politically, uh, and so... The military's job is not to think about the, the domestic politics of these missions, but it's always the job of the President of the United States and his or her staff to consider those matters as well as a larger national interest. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, the military don't concern themselves with this, but the people that want to get reelected do. Which, and as, as we know, uh, it's the elected official that wears it if it doesn't go just the way it's supposed to go. Well, it depends. Uh, Trump has been very good about deflecting uh, responsibility for things that have gone on. He's, he, he, remember, there was a raid that went poorly his first month 
and he blamed the generals. So he, if something were to go awry, he would not say the buck stopped with him. He would he'd probably deflect to, to the generals. What does this do with ISIS? Because obviously, Stephen, they, they've been front and center again. I mean, I know that Trump has been saying that ISIS is defeated and they're gone, and we know that's not true. Uh, but with the Syrian situation and, and the incursion over the border now by Turkish troops, uh, there was a real concern that with some of those escaped prisoners from some of those camps uh, were going to reignite ISIS. Uh, so the timing of this is uh, is rather uh, in- interesting at this stage. How, talk to us about that impact with uh, that story that we were dealing with over the last 10 or 12 days. Well, the timing of, of this might have been driven in part by exactly what's happened the past two weeks because... The United States was relying on local allies for the information. Uh, it was relying on a, a stable situation to figure out where this guy was, how to track him down, how to get to him. And all that may have been complicated or assisted by the recent events. It may have been that Baghdadi was in the right place at the right time because he was reacting to the change in the security situation in Syria. But it might have also been that the information that the United States had was a wasting asset. That is, that we had information given to us by the Kurds, but that in the future the Kurds would be in no position to help us, because, help the United States, because of, of essentially the portrayal of the Trump administration. So with that in mind, uh, I, I guess the obvious question we have is, how concerned should we be about this? And, and, and I'll go back to Ronald Reagan's raid on Gaddafi, of course, in Libya some years ago, the bombing, of course, that on, on actually Gaddafi's compound, which did not take him out, but obviously killed a number of people in his family. Uh, there were repercussions. I, I can remember I was traveling to London about a week after that, and, and there were obviously army troops at uh, Gatwick, uh, Air, Gatwick Airport and other places like this and actually walking the streets in London because they were concerned about about somebody, you know, a payback that could be coming. Should we expect that? Are, are they expecting that in the administration now, that now we have to go on high alert because of what ISIS might do in retaliation? Well, given that ISIS, unlike Libya, has been in a state of war with the United States since its very existence, I don't really think this is going to lead to dramatic escalation of ISIS attempts against the United States. They've been trying to hit the U.S. in a variety of ways for the past, what, five, six, seven years. So this is, whatever alerts we have dealing with them, like we have with al-Qaeda, it's a state of war. So we have to be prepared for those kinds of things. Uh, We can't be too concerned about retaliation. The bigger question is, is, does this really change ISIS's abilities to do things, not so much whether they're going to respond back to this. And there's a lot, been a lot of work on decapitation strikes. That is, if you take out the leadership of a terrorist group, does it change the terrorist group's behavior? And alas, the social science on this is mixed, that, it, that in some, play, some cases it does, in some cases it doesn't. The challenge with ISIS is it has more than just one guy at the top of it. And if you take a look at the bin Laden raid, yes, hitting, getting rid of bin Laden was a progressive step in the war on terror, but it didn't end al-Qaeda. It, and obviously ISIS developed in the aftermath of al-Qaeda in, in Iraq. So these kinds of missions by themselves do not radically change the situation in most cases. Well, and again, that's because of, I guess, some of the intel that we're getting about, well, as you mentioned, with uh, Al-Qaeda and certainly with ISIS in situations like this. How organized are they, Stephen? I mean, I think when we look at something like this, we automatically think of, as you mentioned, the hierarchy. Uh, here's the head, here are the lieutenants, here are the generals, et cetera, et cetera. But is, is ISIS that structured? It's, stru- it's very well-structured. Well uh, it's like al-Qaeda. One of the stories about al-Qaeda was the United States kept on hitting the number third guy in the organization, and that was the most dangerous spot you could have, but they kept on having a new number third guy. And in the case of ISIS, it's a network, and so the thing about a network is it's harder to destroy than uh, the hierarchies that we're familiar with. It used to be, you know, if it's an organization that's rigidly hierarchical, 
then you take out the top two or three rungs and the organization falls apart. But if it's a network of cells, uh, then hitting one or two people isn't really going to disrupt things as much uh, as, a, as a traditional organization. So, yes, they're very well organized. They are resilient, uh, that they were uh, being defeated, or at least on the back, you know, they were, they were retreating. They had lost their territorial space in Syria. But that just turned them back into an ordinary terrorist group as opposed to an insurgency that, that held much territory. I think that was actually one of the, the, the missteps that the, the Trump administration made by simply stating that ISIS was defeated. Uh, from a physical standpoint, they weren't. They just kind of blended in with the population, didn't they? Well, it was a mixture. I mean, they, they, the thing about ISIS is it had claims to being something different than just a mere terrorist group. And so by removing them from their territory, by denying them the sense of inevitability that they had in 2014... That was a major uh, progress uh, in in this war against them. But, again, they're a set of people with a set of ideas, and it's hard to kill the ideas. Uh, and that exists, obviously, through Internet and everything else. I mean, you know, we don't actually know where they're going to be or who actually are the, uh, the I guess, the advocates in some of these situations, which makes it much more difficult. Uh, to, to contrast that with what's going on with the Syrian situation, if you could, Stephen, uh, the U.S. has essentially pulled out. I understand they made this raid, but, I mean, they pulled those troops out of there, and that's what caused the incursion, at least was in, due in part to the incursion by Turkish troops. Uh, we understand that Putin's playing a larger role there now and trying to act as a broker between the, the countries that are involved in this. Uh, has has Russia moved into the Middle East, uh, much to the chagrin of, of, of NATO and a number of other people that were concerned about that happening? Well, to be fair, <laughs> excuse me, uh, to be fair, Syria was always a Russian ally. And so the Syrian civil war is very much an effort by Russia to keep its ally, not to gain a new ally. That Russia now has more troops based in, in Syria is not that radical of a difference. However, uh, there was an opportunity for the West to, to deny Syria uh, being an ally of Russia, and we lost that ability. That having Assad have his own domestic local problems weakened the, so, the Russian position in the Middle East, and now that Assad is ascendant, it does strengthen the Russian hand. But this is not a radical victory for the Russians. So they've had, been able to embarrass the United States on a few occasions, but... Uh, their role in the Middle East has been pretty much limited to Syria, and by siding with Assad against his people, uh, it hasn't made uh, Russia too many friends in the neighborhood, although they are now much closer to Iran than they have been before, and that, that is a, a significant difference. Well, and, and I, I guess there's an argument to be made for the fact Assad is really there simply because Putin's got, got his back on this situation. I mean, there was, I think, severe attempts by NATO in the past to try to remove Assad, and, and Putin seemed to be the guy that said, no, don't even do that, or there will be repercussions. Well, it was more of a matter of capability. It's that it was hard to nail down where Assad was, and the big question at all times was, okay, if we take out Assad, what happens next? There's no guarantee that that the guy who replaces him is any better, uh, and that that's been the challenge. That was the question that the Obama administration was asking itself in 2011, 2012. What's the alternative to Assad? And there weren't too many good ones walking around that seemed like a likely ones. And one of the lessons of Afghanistan, of of uh, Iraq, and elsewhere is. It's one thing to break a place. It's another thing to try to build something stable there. And the United States was reluctant to get uh, deeply buried into and yet another forever war in the Middle East. Uh, we've seen that happen too many times, obviously. Uh, what's, what's going on with Turkey, though? I mean, they, they are a NATO member. Uh, they're not acting like it right now. And uh, they, uh, there's some concern here about wh- whether they're playing, uh, you know, cushy up with the, the Russians at this stage, too. Uh, and uh, that obviously, the, the balance of power, I think, is in play here. And, and there's a lot of concerns about where Turkey is actually going to go and what they're going to do with, uh, with what they've done over the last two weeks. Yes. Well, Turkey has always been a difficult ally. 
and it's gotten harder lately because of the various tensions over how best to deal with the Syria problem. For, for Turkey, they see the Syria problem in a very different way, which is, yes, Syria was a threat to Turkey, but they see the Turks, the Kurds in Tur- Turkey and in Syria as a greater threat than Assad ever was, and so they were wanted to take out this this corridor within Syria that was occupied by the Syrian Kurds because they saw the Syrian Kurds as helping the Kurds in Turkey against the government of Turkey. So that was always their priority, and that was more important than NATO's interests in the region. But with that in mind, as long as those troops were there, and they've been there for some time right now, would Turkey have gone across the border? Oh, it's very clear that we're getting things backwards. It was, it was not that the troops were pulled out because, you know, the Turkey aggressed because the troops pulled out. It was that Turkey had, a, uh, the, or Erdogan had a conversation with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump said, go for it, and then uh, pull, then he had pulled the troops in, in response to that decision. So we're, we're, we're talking about the troops as if that was the most important thing. The thing that rolled, started this off was that Erdogan and Donald Trump had a conversation, and Donald Trump agreed to do what Erdogan wanted, and probably even more so than what Erdogan was expecting. And so it's more about Donald Trump doing the bidding of Turkey than these troops being removed for whatever other reason. But is there a rationale for that, Stephen? Because that really is contrary to what the U.S. policy had been in that region. Yes and no. Well, the rationale is is that you know Trump got elected for uh, in part because he promised to get out of all these wars in the Middle East, and he wanted to get out of the Syrian war, and he'd been talking about that for quite some time. It's just that uh, the people within the administration, including the military, pushed back against that, saying that these troops are providing uh, an important role in in keeping Assad at bay, to keep to have having the, the Kurds help us in the fight against ISIS and all the rest of it. But this is always a very tenuous circumstance because we were essentially supporting uh, a group that is opposed to one of our allies. And so that put Turkey in a difficult spot. It put the United States in a difficult spot. And it wasn't going to last forever. It's just that the big thing about Donald Trump's decision was it was done overnight as opposed to something that had been planned and, and so maybe had negotiated so that way there'd be some other way to do this besides having the Turks roll in and, them and their, uh, their own proxies engaged in pretty heinous activities. But given some of the pushback that we've heard that came from the military, and we're told that they weren't consulted before Trump made that decision, was there a military, a tactical reason to, to keep those troops there? They talked about the balance of power, obviously, and that's changing right now. Uh, and is, is that a bad thing as far as, as the U.S. is concerned? Well, I think that there was a situation that the United States, there was some stability in the situation. But again, at, at some point, the United States is going to have to pull out. It can't just be in all these countries forever. But the question is, how do you do that? And do you do it in a way that uh, that limits the damage? And Trump did it in a way that maximized the damage. So, yes, there was some tactical advantage to being there, but there were also some trade-offs for being there. Uh, and so it wasn't going to last forever. Uh, and this is why some people feel a little conflicted about this, because it was unsustainable in the long run. But the devil is, how do you get to the long run from the short run? And Trump decided to do something very, very precipitous, and then immediately ran back against it because suddenly it became a, a lot more difficult, a lot bloodier than they were expecting. Well, it's uh, obviously a very fluid situation over there and changing almost by the day, so we'll see what happens over the next couple of days as uh, this unfolds. Stephen, thank you again for the time. Great to get your perspective on this. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Stephen Saban, of course, from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.